Welcome back to another MLOps Community Podcast, folks. And this is a very special edition of our podcast because this podcast was recorded about a month ago when I went to San Francisco for the special LLM Avalanche event that we put on right before the Data and AI Summit. It was a huge success. We had about a thousand people show up for a quote unquote meetup, which ended up to basically be a whole unconference in itself. And one of the things that we had at the event was this panel that you are about to hear now. It's a live recording. Hope you all enjoy. We've got some incredible panelists that were chatting with us here. And I ended up writing a whole blog post on my experience of the LLM Avalanche event. So if you would like to check that out, it's a story form. I use my creative writing skills. And if you want to see how I experienced the whole event through the eyes of someone who was severely jet lagged, <laughs> then you can check it out. Let me know in the comments if you thought that I was falling asleep while hosting the panel. I tried to stay awake the best that I could, but you know how the time difference goes between Europe and San Francisco. That's it for now. If you think that there is anyone that would enjoy this episode, please share it with them. And if you want to see all of the different recorded talks that we did that day at the Unconference, you can go ahead and click the link in the description and check it all out. Huge shout out and thanks to Databricks for helping us make this all happen. Without their support, it wouldn't have happened. And now let's get into it. As I did it uh, in the last panel, if you all saw it, I do not have the, um, the ability to give all the accolades that all of these incredibly hard hitters have on stage. So I'm going to let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Today, as you can see, we're going to be talking about, for this last panel that's going to bring us on home and then take us home after this, we're going to be talking about build and risks. And I would like, ideally, for you all to come away from this at the end with an idea of what you should be thinking about when it comes to risks. There's many different ways that we can look at risks. It could be engineering risk. It could be looking at different data risks. And then when you are building, trying to keep those risks at the forefront of your mind and recognizing that it's not after the fact that you want to be thinking about these different risks that we're talking about. So we've got an incredible group of panelists. I am going to start over here at Harrison and then just bring it on over. Go ahead and tell us who you are, Mr. Chase. Hello, I'm Harrison, uh, CEO and co-founder of Langchain, which is a developer framework for building LLM applications. I'm Yaron, I'm a CEO of uh, Robust Intelligence, uh, a company that uh, secures AI. I'm Akansha, I'm at Google DeepMind, and I work on scale and efficiency for uh, language and vision models. Uh, and I, I was leading Palm. My name is Benjamin Harvey. I'm the founder and CEO of AI Squared. I'm also the director of designing trustworthy AI systems program at George Washington University. 
Wow, all right, and I'm Demetrius. So this is gonna be an awesome panel, I can tell already. When it comes to risks, as I mentioned before, there are a whole lot of them that we can look at. So Akansha, maybe you can just give us a bit of an idea of when you think about risk, what do you think of? So when we think about risks, we, it's, it's a broad um, definition. Um, and it falls in line with some of the AI principles that we have. But um, basically starting with fairness and uh, representation in the data that is used to train the models, and then going from there to like training models and, and testing the outputs for all kind of benchmarks and safety. Um, so there's a lot of testing that goes into the model outputs even before RLHF to make sure that these models are uh, well uh, are constructed properly, and then there is, uh, of course, application-specific testing that has to happen, and every application uh, and downstream application might have very different requirements, so that testing is very separate. So that's where I would start the conversation. Um, also, this is a ongoing field, so as we will discuss further, when these models are part of um, systems where you are chaining them perhaps with memory and other applications, then there are further risks that you have to take into account, including like, are you running insecure code or are you doing any data leakage? So all of those questions uh, become even more pertinent uh, based on which systems are interacting with the model. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think that the way that we think about risk is like, we think that there are three categories of risk. Um, there's operational risk, there's ethical risk, there's security, and you know privacy risks. So we think about those in three different categories. And the reason you should think about these, or it's convenient to think about these in three different categories, because they also sort of tell you who in the organization is responsible for them. So you know, if we were meeting here like two years ago, we would mainly talk about operational risk. That's the the one I think that like people in ML, um, you know, in, in engineering would typically think about. You know, so these are things where. You know, traditionally, you would be looking at you know where where could my model be failing due to kind of like operational reasons where it's like unseen categorical missing feature these types of things. Uh, the ethical risk is like things that we started becoming I think as a community more aware of. Maybe I want to say like a year, year and a half ago, uh, when we're starting to think about bias, right, and, and and models and whatnot, right, and then that goes into like different parts of the organization. Typically, parts in the organization that would care about compliance, that would care about legal, right. Um, those parts. And then last, uh, I think and not least, is security, right? Um, and that is, you know, for, I think, uh, you know, something that is somewhere in between ML and security. Uh, that's newer to the security community, but now the security community is actively thinking about, you know, um, about AI risk, and that's, again, different part of the, um, uh, different part of the organization. And that's like, you know, those are things all the way from uh, pickle file security, um, you know, software supply chain aspects of it, all the way to you know, prompt injections, adversarial attacks, these kinds of things. Um, so, so those are kind of like I think the, the main three categories that uh, one can think of. Yeah, I think the the types of risks that I think are newer, as was alluded to earlier, when you start chaining a lot of these models up with real world systems, and you have them not only outputting text, but you're then using that text in a very specific way to do things with tools, whether that's run code, execute SQL, or stuff like that. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, to me, that's uh, very new, And but that's probably, I don't know, to me, that's the type of risk that I'm most interested in and also think can have 
a really big bad impact when you talk about, in, like if you think about AGI going wrong, right? A lot of it's, it's doing stuff and a lot of that is like applying the outputs of whatever its model is to like a real world action. And I think that's where a lot of the risk is introduced. Um, and we're obviously very early on in that journey still, but I think that's kind of like, to me, a lot of the new, exciting, and, and very important type of risk to talk about. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Uh, just to add to that, uh, the in the action space, when we are using the models to take actions in the real world, a lot of the real world deployments would rather go for scoring outputs, which constrains the set of actions that the AI can take, as opposed to open form generation. And that's one risk mitigation that people look at. All right, all right, cool. So, Benjamin, um, when it comes to foundational models in contrast to other AI systems, how do you think about the risks? And um, there's specifically, you know, these, these foundational models which are specifically trained and then used for a particular purpose. What kind of risks are you looking at there? Great question. So um, one of the things that you'll see, and I think uh, the panelists up here have mentioned, is that um, at different stages of the machine learning lifecycle, there are different risks that could be introduced. And one of the things um, that's important that, that really separates kind of the traditional machine learning lifecycle, where you're a data scientist building a model um, that might be used and delivered to one or three different analysts inside of an organization, versus a, a very general large language model um, is that um, as we are training these different types of models inside of these organizations, um, these models are being delivered in a way where uh, the analysts are interfacing with them from a human machine teaming perspective. Um, and because of that, it allows us to um, have the ability to start um, identifying certain mechanisms of feedback so that we could start to you know, understand you know, the actionability of the model, you know, the relevancy of the model, um, things like you know, um, how timely uh, the information is actually arriving. And uh, overall in an organization, it's really about uh, trust that leads to adoption. Right? So from an end user perspective, you're really looking at um, how can I increase the amount of trust to overall, for, for overall uh, increase in adoption and that is you know, really a component of you know, all of those different areas of, you know, can I make the results more actionable? Can I make them more relevant? Can I make them more timely? Can I add additional contextualization that can increase the trust and increase that overall adoption? So when people think about different use cases with large language models, right now there are two gigantic questions that come to mind. And one we addressed in the last panel that I did, and it was all about ROI. And in this panel, it's very much about the risks and the trust and when things go wrong, how they can go wrong. And uh, I would be remiss to not mention my favorite part of large language models, which are hallucinations. And whoever was the researcher that came up with that name, props to you because I can make jokes all day about that. So when it comes to hallucinations, how do you think about mitigating those risks? Because it could seem really real, and then you could put it into a commercial and put it out for the world to see that, like, this actually is happening or, you know, like, oh, you can, you can damage your brand quite heavily if you are not aware of what is going on with these hallucinations. So do any of you have any ideas on how to mitigate that and what you look at? 
First of all, it's a, it's a great point to keep in mind when you're building applications that these models hallucinate and they're actually overconfident in their answers. So they will hallucinate with so much confidence that even if you're not an expert in an area, you might read that text and you would be like, oh, that seems so believable. I totally buy that. So I think for information seeking, they're not quite there yet. It's an active area of research um, where some of the techniques include calibrating the models so that they can answer how, they're, how confident they are uh, in addition to just spitting out text. Um, there are other techniques which involve retrieval augmentation uh, where you put the right set of text in the context window. So those are some of the techniques for mitigation. But in terms of deployment, uh, what's um, most useful is to have human in the loop who is an expert. And these models mostly acting as an assistance for generating text or, or whatever it is, like whether it's code, but there should be a human in the loop at this point in time to review what's being output. And they better be an expert and someone who can critique the model output is um, how I look at it. I think um, you know one of the um, one of the things that you you know you learn uh, when you when you hang a little bit with the security community is that you learn that they have um, you know one of the set of the controls that they have is just don't use the product, right? Which is you know that's amazing, right? That's a very powerful control, right? Um, and you know that's not a bad idea, right? Like for some things. So I think like um, at, you know what. Um, on one extreme, you know, I think that there is something about recognizing the fact that, you know, we're using models, these models can, you know, hallucinate by design almost. So um, we need to be thoughtful about the, you know, the applications that we're using them for and then, you know, sort of, well, if my application cannot tolerate, um, you know, hallucinations, maybe I shouldn't use it for that application. I think that's, that's on one extreme, but I think it's also, you know, like a very acceptable solution, uh, you know, in many cases. I think, you know, then there's a spectrum, right? Um, all between, you know, somewhere between kind of just accepting the fact that there are hallucinations or not, you know, or just not accepting them at all and not using the model. But then, you know, there's a spectrum in between. And, and I think that really um, one needs to, kind of the best mechanisms to try to mitigate those is to try to be really focused and not ask like, you know, how do I make sure that my model doesn't hallucinate? But more, how do I make sure that um, for the specific tasks that I care about the model getting right, um, how do we, you know, try to design like kind of very well articulated validation, you know, uh, rules or, you know, firewalls or whatever that, you know, that really nail down the, you know, the, the validations of the things that we care about. So either don't use it, you know, at all uh, for, the, you know, if you have sensitive applications that you're worried about hallucinations or formulate um, the problem a little bit better, be more precise about the things that you really, really care about. Um, and then uh, build the, the right mechanisms and controls for those very specific things. And what do those mechanisms look like? What are you seeing in, as far as like the controls? Um, again, I think that like, you know, you can, um, you can imagine kind of like an application for like, a, you know, maybe you have a commercial, commercial application and you really care about making sure that the, you know, now the model doesn't hallucinate about price, right? Or it doesn't hallucinate about, um, you know, maybe about URLs, right? And then it becomes, you know, from like this very big, you know, broad problem of like hallucinations to solving a very specific problem. And that very specific problem that you're then trying to solve is you're trying to do like a lookup, right? Almost to sort of see whether that URL actually exists or not, right? Um, and that's a much easier problem to solve than, you know, to sort of, you know, go on, you know, this um, uh, heroic, 
you know, kind of uh, fight against, uh, you know, AI hallucinations. <laughs> All right, I like that. So, uh, Harrison, I wanted to ask you, I feel like there is a generative AI apps stack that's forming. And I want to ask you because it feels like LangChain is smack in the middle of it. And when you think about, okay, if there is this stack that's forming, what in your eyes are the building blocks as you're trying to build your generative AI use case? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on the application, obviously. But I think at the core of it, you've got the language model. Um, and so I think there's a lot of uh, choices there. Um, you know, OpenAI is probably the one that people are using most. Um, but there's there's lots of, uh, there's a few private alternatives and there's a bunch of open source alternatives. I think a lot of, um, I think, again, it depends on the use case, but a lot of the use cases we see are some type of kind of like retrieval augmented generation or grounded generation. Um, and so that generally involves a vector store that generally involves an embedding model. Um, and I think another interesting thing is also, uh, uh, and yeah, and there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of different things that you can choose between there. Um, but um, I, I think another component is actually the UI for it as well. Um, and I think like uh, there, as kind of mentioned, like um, LMs aren't great for every use case and a way that you can make it better besides improving the underlying model is to improve like the UI and the UX of the things as well. And so I think things like showing intermediate steps, showing the retrieved documents, help build some of that trust, help people who are looking at answers validate whether it is actually correct or not. And so I think, um, yeah, there's, there's a, a bunch of, uh, there's a few kind of like existing players like Gradio and Streamlit that have kind of like got into this space with some really interesting templates. There's also new players like Chainlit, which offer kind of like this intermediate thing. I think the UI is maybe like the, un, the most underexplored and underdeveloped part of the stack. Like I feel like everything else is like relatively kind of like standard, but I think like everyone's doing chat and chat's hopefully not the only UI for these things. And so I think, yeah, I think there'll be some interesting kind of like UI frameworks to emerge to help with a lot of this. Awesome. Anybody else want to take a stab at that? Yeah, so, you know, when you think of, um, you know, some of the co-pilot style um, integrations, right? So a lot of organizations that we work with um, immediately from a, you know, frontline worker perspective um, in financial services or, uh, you know, my background, I did 10 years at the National Security Agency, and we work with tons of analysts. And what they talk about is, even if you develop a new application that's outside of their workflow, uh, even if they have to do that content text switching from one application to another, they'll never use it, right? Because it's, it's out of their workflow, and when they want to make a decision on the data and it's out of context, they won't use it. So one of the things that um, is really important for these analysts that may use one or two tools on a day-to-day -day basis, and they don't use anything else, is really trying to figure out how do you integrate uh, these large language model results directly inside of the workflows of the one or two tools that they use on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, to your point, I think it's really important not only exploring kind of the one-off applications for the conversational AI, but trying to integrate the results directly into workflows of those users. I think there's also, like adding on to that, I think there's another type of UX, which is interesting to explore, which is maybe like 
the no UX paradigm, or basically just run things as background processes. And I think that's also relevant for this discussion around risk, because if you think about a chat, there's a very real like expectation on the latency that you can induce. Um, but if it runs in a background process, like you know, there, there's less of an SLA on like an email or something. Hmm. So you can maybe do a lot of fact checking with like there, you know, there's a bunch of research using LLMs to fact check kind of like themselves, doing some reflection steps. And so for UXs where it's just in the background, it's not in the foreground, you can maybe do more of these and increase kind of like the reliability with that as well. Awesome. All right. So <laughs> uh, I like it because normally I'm doing this virtually and I can't tell if somebody wants to talk or not. And so then I got to call them out and then somebody's like, oh, no. Or, and here I get to see raises the microphone to their face and their head and so then I, it's I, 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 I will say this okay so so here we go <laughs> I knew I, it. I knew. I'm sorry um, I think I think there is um, I think we just have to be mindful of LLMs like uh, checking themselves right I, I think it's um, Ooh, tell us more I mean I mean uh, I, I, I think that we um, I, th I think that you know we're we're aware of the fact that like uh, you know there's there's risk in using LLMs and when we're using LLMs to uh, you know when we're sort of using out of the box LLMs to test um, you know to test LLMs and I think that um, you know we, we've seen evidence of, of cases where where that um, where that can go where that can go wrong so um, so I think those that that is yet yet another risk you know that, that we have to be uh, mindful of um, so. So basically, don't rely too much on the LLM that lied once may lie again. Yeah, I, I think we just need to be. Yeah, we need we need to be thoughtful about it. We need to build like kind of um, tools that are purposefully built for uh, for these tasks. And so uh, that brings up the next point, which is kind of like common pitfalls that you'll see. And I think that one is a clear case of people saying, "Okay, well, if we can just get the LLM to evaluate its output." then we should be good. And later down the line, you realize that you're not good. What are some other things that you've seen along the way and you're like, yeah, this is being taken as good practice but may not be that useful? And I see a few of you kind of having to think, this wasn't on the pre-recorded <laughs> questions. So now they're starting to go like, hey, he's throwing a curveball. Um, ben, you think of any? I think one one big area for a lot of organizations is they're 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 really trying to increase speed to market right now for uh, these large language model capabilities. And um, you know we were um, uh, you know in a in a, uh, a meeting with a, a CEO and um, he was talking about you know the importance for him to accelerate the AI and machine learning. And uh, he talked about uh, his board of directors, and they told him that he needed to take part of his pay and figure out how to um, increase the amount of AI that was in the product for his organization, right? So, so there's a lot of emphasis on trying to speed to market. And what we've seen uh, in, in two different types of organizations, and highly regulated organizations in financial services and um, top secret classified organizations in the intelligence community, is they do a really good job of running observational studies first, right? So even if they're trying to increase the speed to market, they're gonna slow down to do an observational study first where they're gathering feedback from a handful of, of users inside of the organization, where they're tuning and retraining before they deploy to a, a larger, you know, hundreds of thousands of end users that need to use the technology. 
So even though that these organizations are trying to, you know, accelerate how quickly they're getting the AI and machine learning results from the large language models in the hands of those end users, it's still extremely important to have that human machine teaming aspect up front where you're starting to gather that feedback because ultimately, um, if you can't um, kind of gain that trust from that study and then scale it in a way where you have that trust across the organization, you won't get adoption anyway. So it's, it's really important to kind of have that two-step process. Excellent. So I want to be mindful because we have just a bit of time left and I want to make sure that you all can ask questions. So I see a few hands up already. Um, I'll give my microphone over. It's going to be like the equivalent of putting myself on mute. And uh, I'll let you all ask the questions now. OK, so as you're doing this calculus, the risk versus reward of the, of the large language models, the calculus risk versus reward, along the way with the training, at what point or what are the top two or three either way that makes the it clear to you that the risk is exceeding the reward and you need to take a different path or that the reward is exceeding the risk what's the the top one or two or three in each direction that leads you to go one way or the other that the risk exceeds the reward or the reward is exceeding the risk i, I mean i think the honestly a lot of what we see is that um there's not great like I think people are struggling to find product market fit for a lot of these applications in general. And so I just don't think the reward for a lot of things is, is that high. Like, especially if we're talking about some of like the tool use and agent stuff that can introduce some of this risk. Like there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of demos on, on Twitter of using agents to do various things, but I, I just don't think they're good enough to be put in production. And it's not necessarily even because of the risk at this point, I don't think. I think there's just a gap in going from prototype to production. And so, um, yeah, this is like a roundabout way of saying I just don't think the reward in general is that high for a lot of these more complex applications, which is generally where, where LangChain kind of plays in, so that's where I have more of the visibility. Yeah, and, and I think it's not different from what we you know, know from like basic ML, right? If you can do it with the decision tree, then do it with the decision tree. You know, if you can do it with, you know, with linear regression, great, do it with linear regression. Don't do it with a, you know, um, a, a deep uh, deep learning model, um, and I think it's not different here. So I think the, the the first question that people need to ask themselves is like, you know, when they're when they're using an application, do I really need, you know, the state of the art LLM with you know all the you know risks associated with it? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. Um, and but um, but then you know basically try to find like I think the simplest model uh, that you could use, and this is where I think the um, open source community. Uh, is going to be so powerful, right? Because I feel like so many people are, you know, now are very empowered to build their own LLMs for their very targeted specific applications. And I think that's going to um, ultimately, what, what that would do is uh, uh, reduce risk. What are your thoughts on some kind of probability beyond just like the token next word prediction, but just the actual Here's the answer. Here's the closest match. Why is that? Is that just chain of thought, but an actual number, some kind of probability that is intuitive? So there's some like interesting stuff around asking like the language model to output kind of like probabilities, but I think most of that has shown that they're not like super well calibrated. And I think that's what I've seen like empirically as well. Um, I think they're just like overconfident in a lot of cases, and they're also biased towards certain 
um, like around the how this gets back to the point of having LLMs grade themselves, but they're biased towards like certain places in in the thing. Um, I mean, I think like what we basically see people doing, and this is a little bit, this is kind of related to getting like a confidence estimate, is like when you, when you start, you start from scratch for most cases. And I think that's the power of the generative models. They can do everything. Like, yes, you know, you, you could train a classifier, but instead you could just like prompt the language model in this way and you can get up to speed really fast. The issue is then is like, how do you know how well it's doing? And I think what we see people doing there is just building up a data set of like test cases over time and then running against that. And so when you change the prompt or whatever, you kind of just like look to see what happens on your 10, 15, 20 different test cases. And I think that's, it, it's, it's not exactly what you asked, but I think like that's how we see people getting a general sense of how it's doing on a task in general. Yeah, a combination of human in the loop, combination of like uh, testing basically. Um, and this also gets to like, uh, like I know we've talked about kind of like LLMs grading each other as well, and I think it's not perfect, but I think one of the things that it does do is it can be like a guiding light to for where the human should focus their effort. So if you have kind of like a thousand data points, maybe you don't trust the LLM. And I think I don't think anyone who's doing LLM evals trusts it completely to give a grade of like 0.93 or something like that. But I think what it can do is generally highlight data points, and then you have a human go in and look at maybe like 10 data points instead of like 100. Um, and I think we've yeah, I mean, I, I think like we're still so early on in, in this journey, and I think a big part of it is just getting that iteration speed up, and so having a way to measure that confidence is really important, and the way we see people doing that is just having this data set of like 10, 20 examples. There's actually a lot of good academic research on conformal predictions that uh, do exactly this, that give you not only prediction, but give you like um, the confidence around that prediction, and there's, there, there's a very solid theory behind it um, to... Um, you know, I think that um, we haven't seen it as much applied uh, for you know large language models, but I'd be surprised if we, you know in the you know the coming you know um, machine learning conferences we wouldn't see uh, you know that line of research get adopted to uh, to this. So so I think uh, if we just sort of continue on seeing what what comes out of the academic community, I think we're going to see exactly that, and I'm sure that it's going to be uh, very interesting. All right, I guess that is it, everybody. Let's hear a huge round of applause for our panelists. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight.